impossible thing for some people to believe that Jesus would be raised from the dead. And sadly, you've got even Christians or people that call themselves Christians that say that they don't believe in the resurrection either. And it reminded me of when I was reading in Acts in the 17th chapter, a couple of verses. This is Paul when he's in Athens. And verse 16 in the 17th chapter and a couple of verses after that says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seemed to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They called him an idle babbler. Now they got a city full of God, so many gods that they even have to have a statue to an unknown God in case they miss one and, and he got offended. And they're calling Paul a babbler. You know, Athens, Greece in general, was the place where the, so many of the great philosophers came from, the Plato's and the Socrates and the Aristotle's and all these people. And it's also the place that you get all this Greek mythology. You get the Cyclops, you get Atlas, you get the Sirens, you get Medusa, you get uh, Dalius and Icarus, the one that flew up to the sun and his wings melted and he fell to the earth. And it goes on and on and on, the Minotaur. Now, these are the people, and so many of them believe these things. And they're calling Paul an idle babbler because he preaches the resurrection of Jesus. That just goes to show you the insanity of people. They will accept incredulous, crazy, weird stuff and won't give a moment's time to the truth. And it just uh, amazed me. Paul's teaching, teaching, preaching the resurrection and they're calling him an idle babbler. And that's sort of, sadly, the way things are. Thank you, Tony. And um, I was also thinking about the word home. What do you think about when you think of the word home? Because so many people, you think of a place of rest, a place of refuge, a place where you can relax, where you can be with people you love. And then I thought, what does Jesus say about home? And what Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You know, as the Holy Spirit indwells believers, so does the Father and so does the Son.
And um, Jesus is going to prepare a place for them and for us. And the place that he was going to prepare was in his father's house. An eternal home for everyone that believes. And that's the home that all of us long for. It's a home where righteousness dwells. And then in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, it talks about faithful men and women in the Old Testament and that were certain they were going to receive what they had been promised, but what they had not yet been given. They were seeking a homeland. They confessed that they were strangers and aliens or pilgrims on this earth. They desired a better, that's a heavenly country that they desired. And they said, therefore, or the scripture says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Jesus' resurrection means that home is now ours forever. That home that God promised is now ours forever. Resurrection means home assured. And saw a, um, a quote from, from Derek Thomas. And he says, in talking about pain and suffering, he says, whatever the answer to the problem of pain and suffering is, it cannot be an answer at the expense of the character of God. It cannot be an answer at the expense of the justice of God, of the integrity of God, or of the righteousness of God. We have to fit our thoughts into the character of God, not the other way around. So anytime we start moaning and groaning about pain or suffering, we've got to be very careful not to defame the character of God in it. You know, Job asked the question that's a question that occupies the mind of so many people. He said, if a man dies, shall he live again? And we all know we want to have to face death someday. And for non-believers, that's a terrifying fate, even if some of them joke about it and make very light about it. You know, you had existent or you have existential philosophers uh, like Jean Paul Sartre, who some of us had to read in past years, you got Albert Camus, people like this, and Nietzsche, and their basic end game is that life is meaningless, that this is all there is. That um that, that just go ahead and be miserable now because you're not going to get anything later. Does anyone remember the name Mel Blanc? In case you don't, let me tell you who he is. Mel Blanc was the man who provided the voices for so many of the Warner Brother cartoons. He was the voice of Bugs Bunny, of Elmer Fudd, 
of Daffy Duck, a Foghorn Leghorn. I mean, on and on and on, Porky Pig. And at the end of all those cartoons, it didn't say the end. It said, that's all, folks. When Mel Blanc died, it put his name, his date of birth, the date he died. And it said, that's all, folks. Because he thought that's all there was. What a sadness. That's all, folks. Well, that's not all, folks. That's not the end. There are many others that say the same thing and they're desperately wrong. Death is not the end. You know, G Jesus answered Job's question. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. When you share the gospel with other people, and I know you do. When you talk about Jesus, where do you begin? Well, where did Paul begin? Paul began in 1 Corinthians. In the 15th chapter, the first four or five verses, this is what Paul says. Now, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of most importance, first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, have died. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So what does Paul do? What does he say? Where does he start? Paul says, of first importance, I'm giving you what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the gospel, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day. So that's what Paul considered of first importance. Those three things. Christ was born, he, was, he died, and he was raised, he was resurrected on the third day. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. A living hope. You're born again to a living hope. How? Why? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where your living hope comes from. That's how you're born again. It's an imperishable hope. It can never die. It's undefiled. It cannot be marred. It cannot be marked up or altered in any way. And it will not fade away. It's permanent. It's reserved in heaven for you, the ones that are protected by the power of God. How? Through faith for salvation that's going to be ultimately revealed at the last day. And in the Bible, hope is not a, an uncertainty. It's not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation of future blessing. And it's based on facts and it's based on promises. Living means undying and permanent. It's the undying and permanent character of the hope. Christ's resurrection is what secures, it's what anchors this living hope. He lives, we live. When we think of the events that took place on what Christians call Good Friday, there are great sound and wonderful reasons for our hope. And that's why the Friday before Easter Sunday is called good. But the death of Jesus didn't seem good to anyone at the time that it happened. Maybe with the exception of the uh, Jewish leaders and Satan, of course. Nobody else thought there was anything good about it. No one was writing hymns, coming up with poems. No one was talking about the, the merits of self-sacrifice. It was just a, bl a bloody brutally beaten corpse hanging on a cross. Jesus was dead and he was taken down and he was buried and the women were weeping and the men were hiding and it all seemed to be over. The end of a great hope had come. Nobody was rejoicing on Good Friday. Then something remarkable happened. And whatever it was changed everything. All four of the Gospels tell us what that remarkable thing was. But we're going to look at what Luke tells us in Luke 24. They all add certain aspects to it, but they all agree of what happened after Good Friday. In the uh, events that led up to chapter 24, which is about the resurrection, 
Luke tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday before crowds that were praising God for all the miracles that they had seen. Everyone was cheering. Well, almost everyone, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leading men weren't cheering because they wanted to destroy Jesus. But Luke 19, 48 says, they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on every word he said. Nevertheless, at some point during that week, we're told that, J that Satan entered into Judas and he went to the chief priests and the chief officers asking how he might betray Jesus. On Thursday evening, Jesus ate the final Passover meal with his apostles in the upper room. And afterwards, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas betrayed him with a kiss and he was arrested. What followed this was an illegal religious trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, their Supreme Court body, and his own trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. The charge against Jesus was blasphemy. Why blasphemy? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. And blasphemy You want a definition of blasphemy, it's slander or insult to God, which detracts from his glory or honor. So they said Jesus was committing blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be the son of God, when in effect that they were the ones committing blasphemy by refusing to hear Jesus. So that slander or insult to God that they claimed that Jesus committed, uh, it was punishable by death. That's what the Old Testament says. They're to be stoned to death if they blaspheme the name of God, the book of Leviticus. And of course it was a false claim, but they weren't interested in truth. They just wanted to get rid of Jesus for political reasons. So Jesus is found not guilty by Pilate, but eventually turned over anyway to the mob to be crucified. So he was crucified on Friday morning and about mid-afternoon he was dead. One of the righteous Jewish leaders, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked for his body. And when Pilate found out that Jesus was dead already, he gave permission. And so Joseph takes Jesus and he puts him in a tomb, his own tomb, one that's never been used before. And he does that and he has to do it before a Sabbath. So he takes him before sundown on that Friday afternoon and he takes him to his burial tomb. 
And with the Sabbath about to begin at sundown, the women who had come with Jesus out of Galilee saw the tomb of Jesus and they returned to their own home, to their lodgings, to prepare spices that they could use to prepare Jesus' body on Sunday morning. They can't go out the next day because it's the Sabbath. And Jews are not allowed to travel on the Sabbath, and they certainly can't go near a dead body. So the Sabbath day, they stay home and prepare front spices or wherever else they have to do. And then we have Sunday morning. And if we look at Luke 24, 1 through 12, we can see what happened. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood, stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. We're familiar with the Easter story, and we know the ending the glorious ending. But that was not the case with Jesus' disciples. The women that went to the tomb that morning, they were absolutely grief-stricken. They were depressed, they were exhausted, and they had been mourning and were mourning. Jesus, their teacher, their hope, was killed in the prime of his life. Everything that he had taught them filled them with hope and the expectation of the kingdom of God coming. And like so many others, they misinterpreted what he said. Their understanding was flawed. They were thinking of a, a political kingdom, a military kingdom, deliverance from Rome, like so many of the others rather than the spiritual kingdom that Jesus was talking about. 
And then when Jesus was crucified, all their hopes were dashed. The women went to the tomb on that Sunday morning to, to complete the burial process, according to the Gospel of Mark. And they wondered how they were going to get into the tomb. They expected to do their task, bring the embalming materials, shed some tears, and then go home. You ever been to a, a cemetery to, to visit a loved one and maybe taking some flowers? What would you think if you got to the graveside and you saw an empty grave? Well, the first thing you do is go, what has happened to the body of the one I love, the one I came to see? You your first thoughts in your mind certainly would not be, well, they've risen from the dead. Well, that wasn't the first thought of the women either. They were, they were devastated and um, it would not occur to you that your loved one had been resurrected. Luke said on the first day of the week at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And I'm sure that they were probably glad of that because they'd been wondering how they were gonna get in the tomb to begin with. But when they went into the tomb, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus although the linen claws were still there. And it says they were perplexed. They were puzzled, you think? I'd be perplexed and puzzled too. They didn't understand what had happened to the body of Jesus. In fact, Mary Magdalene went so far as to say, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. This is in John 20. She didn't know if the body of Jesus was stolen placed in another tomb or what? At this point, they just didn't know where the body of Jesus was. The empty tomb just caused their grief to be even more intense. So while the women were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. The Gospel of John tells us that these two men were angels. And they asked the women, why do you see the living among the dead? And that's really a rebuke. You know, Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection on more than one occasion. In Luke 9, 22, just before Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Jesus said essentially the same thing to him after the transfiguration. And then when he was leaving Galilee to go to Jerusalem with the disciples, he said he would be turned over to the Gentiles, mocked, flogged, and killed on the third day, and rise on the third day. So they should have known. We should know. In the next portion of Luke 24, 
tells about Jesus appearing to the disciples or two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And after listening to their report, walking with them and hearing what they had to say about the events of his death and burial and of their absolute dashed hopes of what they had expected and now what was never going to be. Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. We don't want Jesus saying that to us. Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. We ought to know. We ought to know. They should have known. You know, all through scripture, we see people that don't know. They don't know Jesus is going to be born. They don't know where he's going to be born. So they should have known the time. They should have known the place. They should have known that he was the son of God. Scripture says it over and over again, but they didn't know. We have no excuse for not knowing a lot of things. Now, some things are hidden from us by the providence of God. But there are a lot of things that we ought to know that we don't know. The Bible says, search the scriptures and see if the things aren't so. And that's what we're supposed to do. After being reminded by the angels of Jesus' words, the women reported these things to the 11 disciples and all the rest that were there. And what was the result? But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Slow, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe. Like the women initially, the other disciples did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. They were grief-stricken that everything they believed had fallen apart. But to his credit, Peter ran to the tomb, stooped and looked in and saw the linen cloths, cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. If you look at the Gospel of John, you'll see that John also ran with Peter. And John got to the tomb first, but he didn't go into the tomb. And then Peter came. And he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. And then John makes a very interesting comment that as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. John 20. It seems that the disciples still did not understand at this point that Jesus must rise from the dead. They saw clearly that the body was gone. 
because the linen cloths were lying there, along with the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. So they at least understood that the body was gone, but they didn't yet believe that Jesus was alive. It wasn't until Peter saw Jesus later on in that same evening, later that Sunday, that he came to understand and believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You know, after Jesus had walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and revealed who he was, he then vanished from their sight. And then again in Luke 24, beginning in verse 32, these two that Jesus had walked with said, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon, to Peter. They began to relate their own experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst but they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit and he said to them why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts see my hands and my feet that it is i myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that i have and when he had said that, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning with you beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. From great hope 
to great sadness and great mourning, and then back to great joy, even greater joy, because the resurrection testifies that everything Jesus said is true. It testifies that he will not leave you fatherless, that he is your father, that the father is your father, just like he's Jesus' father. And Jesus is your savior and your brother, just like he said he would be. To speak of the resurrection is to say that death never has the last word. To trust in Jesus, the risen one, is to trust that God will call us to new life after death. True faith has always been resurrection faith. Unless I get sidetracked, we'll stop there. But resurrection faith, that's true faith. And people that say they don't believe the resurrection, they don't know the character of God. They don't know who he is, what he is, what he's promised, what he has done, and what he will do. He cannot lie. Witness after witness saw Jesus. Witness after witness heard him. People forever have seen Jesus, either in the flesh or they've seen his spirit, felt his spirit, heard his words, know he's true. And instead of the silliness that people insist on believing, there's evidence after evidence after evidence that Jesus is who he said he is. And that the day is coming where there is going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection of the righteous to eternal life and a resurrection of the wicked to eternal separation. There's a resurrection for everybody. The question is, which resurrection are we going to have? Let's pray. Lord, the fact that you're alive has just caused us to to just experience such extreme joy and such great, great uh, contentment and hope and expectation. Lord, the places where we, we fail in our, in our faith and in our belief, we pray that you would help us, that you would uh, rid, of, rid of us of those places and cause us to be faithful to understand your word and to love it and to walk with you every day, Lord, and to be a witness, a true witness, a witness of your, that you're alive forevermore. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you, Greg. The assurance 
of an eternal home for all who believe. Praise his name. Praise his name. As we believe God here this morning, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer for a moment? Um, how would you respond to, to this message this morning? What would you ask God to do in your life, in your heart? How will you how will you let this great hope that turns into great horror and great disappointment and great fear and then great surprise and then into great how could this be true to turn into great joy to turn into great worship? So often I think that our primary, we have lots of primary roles as Christians, but one is the role of worshiping God, loving and adoring him from our heart. Anyone have comments or a response you'd like to share this morning? One last comment. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, we probably would have never heard about him. Nobody would have known who he was because everybody scattered. Everybody was in despair. Mm. Mm. Amen to that, Greg. Mm.